0: You know, I have another saying that I took from the teams, which is always err on the side of aggression. Moderation is for cowards, which is which is a great one. My wife loves it. I say it to my kids all the time. They need a little bit more context before they take that one to bat. But I, I think it's it like that's that's what founders need to do.
1: Hello again, my friends, and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen, and no one stopped me from creating a podcast. This show explores technology, investing, entrepreneurship, and personal growth in ways that will help you and the rest of humanity create a brighter, more abundant future. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on. To read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early-stage tech companies, visit ejorgensen.com. This podcast Episode today is the third episode of Track Zach, where we get quarterly-ish updates from Zach Marshall on the company he is starting. A marketplace for private security called Conterra. The last episode of Track Zach was December 2021, six months into his new company. His vision had remained the same, but he had realized that his first approach to the market was wrong. Uh, Zach set off to find more specifically what customers would pay for, how to productively work with security professionals on the supply side of his marketplace. And today we hear All his new progress and lessons learned over the past few months and how he evolved the focus and the target audience to start to develop traction with a specific customer and build a sales pipeline. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. As always, we should have started recording minutes ago.
0: Yeah. We should definitely start because we always have a good time together. Intro, (laughs) like the, the catch up session we should, we should record in the future.
1: Yeah. It's it's always it's always part of the fun. And you have teased me with an overflowing bucket of updates from the last three or four months. So I'm really excited to get into it and see everything that's happened in, in your life and Conterra over the last couple months. It was fun to go back and listen to the previous episodes and like gather all my curiosities and uh, check out your the year end update that you emailed to me like. January maybe, and just see everything that's, that has changed. And this is exactly what we're trying to capture is like how much shit changes in an early stage startup like this.
0: A lot. (laughs) So much.
1: (laughs) All right. Do Do you remember like how, how clear is your picture from like where you were in January to where you were today? Like, are you, are you just like mentally stretching time or are you kind of like it's really clear how far you've come and you're like, oh my God, look, look at the ground we covered in the last four months.
0: It's, it's definitely clear. We've, we've covered an extreme amount of ground in the last four months. The good news is a lot of that's in the direction that I put in the letter, in the annual letter. It's like, that is the direction we went, which is really great. I looked up some of the things that I said were the goals and like we've We've moved on all of them. Where I think the previous podcast, when it was like let's recap the goals, it was like ah, well, we just kind of scrapped those and just picked new ones. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's good. We're 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 definitely moving in the right direction, and I feel like we've. I mean, we're a, we're a 10x better company today than we were in January.
1: But That's awesome. And in you know a hundred days, that that is a lot to say. That is that is progress every day and every week to get to get something like that done. I'll try to recap the snapshot from like December, January, which was you had a had a product yep. that, that sort of the takeaways were like, we we built a car wheel instead of a skateboard. Mm-hmm. We learned that we have to get demand first because demand then brings on supply. This is a really low trust market and we we maybe need to pursue like car facts, car max kind of strategies to create that. But you felt like you had a really clear path of let me just keep talking to customers. Let's find our beachhead and bring on an operations person and sort of uh, shift from focus on building tech to focus on doing operations supported by tech where, where necessary, which is back to the skateboards. Is there anything you want to add to that snapshot or correct?
0: Yeah, I'll just add some details to it. So like, so for personnel, yeah. we, we did. We built software for six months and my original plan was three months. So we, we already doubled the amount of time to get the first product out that product was in the wrong direction. We were trying to do supply side first. So we are creating an onboarding uh, platform for the labor mm-hmm. side. Labor side didn't trust us enough once it was software instead of like personal relationship. And so we we, we were getting, we we're really collecting no's come December timeframe. And the software had already taken a long time. There were like the, the, it just wasn't meshing the way it didn't need to. And so, you know, first hard, first toughest decision at the company was having to let go the head of product. Not because mm-hmm. he, wasn't performing, but because that was just a skill set that we couldn't afford for the next season, right? So going into Q1 of this year, it was like, well, we're not building software internally. We can't pay the guy who builds the software internally. A lot, so many lessons learned there. We can dive into after I finish the snapshot, but after letting him go, you know, the next step was, well, how do we collect demand side first and what demand can we serve? And so we picked a couple products that we thought would work and started talking to customers. And when I say we, I brought on a director of operations, this guy, Kurt, coming out of uh, the Department of State, hired him directly from the Department of State. He was a special agent there. Not exactly sure what I am not allowed to say on recording, but he he worked with a bunch of agencies across the globe. He worked on diplomatic security. He helped build out security for um, some embassies in really dangerous places. So this is a guy who really understands security at its finest. And he also was a, a former Army Special Forces sniper and a Baltimore County um, police officer. So between the, all, all of that stuff, he was a great Damn. fit for a couple of reasons, right? One, you know, this guy's a, a heavy hitter, a hard charger, um, excited dude. Two, he was excited enough about Contrera to leave, you know, a three-time multi-pronged career of, of the most stable paycheck in the world. To come join this, right? Which is working for the government, wow. and the third bit is he kind of hit all of the labor markets that we hire from, right? So having mm-hmm. been law enforcement, military, and then you know more direct government, that's pretty much where we're getting the vetted labor from, from high to low end. It's like we like the fact that in all three of those cases, the backgrounds have been vetted by other people. It's like just the same reason that you hire, you know, somebody who went to Harvard isn't because the education maybe they got they got in. So Harvard said they're pretty good mm-hmm. to go. It's like, well, they were in the government, so they probably don't, you know, seal things and have a bunch of other stuff. They have security clearance, whatever. So th- these are probably people we can mm-hmm. use for security roles. So that was one of the reasons I brought him on. And, and he's been a rock star. So that really helped fuel the growth we've had over the past few months. And we did. We switched over to complete demand side first, operations focused. The only thing that I've done for the software side is scope projects with really um, well-recommended vendors. So we kind of understand what yeah. we would build first, how we build some prototypes if we wanted to build them. We've also looked at how we're going to build our next prototype this this following quarter coming up, which is going to be using Airtable, Zapier, Twilio, and you know, you know APIs and all of its backend stuff. None of it's front end with the client. It's all how we connect to the vendors and the labor side. But it's been it's been cool. We've we've. We've shifted, man, we went from supply to demand and it took two months to get, so we, we had to start with conversations and picking what mm-hmm. products we were gonna grow. And then those conversations t- turned into like more direct like customer interviews. And then, then I mean, it wasn't it really, it was last month that every customer interview I had, I had like seven in a row where at the end of the interview, they said, hey, I know you said you wouldn't sell us anything, but can we buy it? you know and that's a really good <laughs> thing to hear right so we've booked more yeah. more clients uh, than ever before our you know we've got four paying customers for may and and we expect that to continue to grow every single month you know so we went from 15k in revenue total to 25k in revenue for may and you know i don't think that's going to slow down i think we'll be looking at i mean our target now is 250k by the end of the year which is a huge difference mm-hmm. than what i expected in in December, right? When I'm like, jeepers, we don't know what we're doing. We did everything wrong.
1: Yeah. Well, and and starting that marketplace business is just, you have different expectations for revenue and how it's going to go. And, and, you know, to your point, it takes time to build that pipeline. So a a few months to go from a standing start to a, a relatively full pipeline where customers are converting and you expect, you know, you've got cash this month and you expect next month to be bigger. That's great. And you hope that that snowball just kind of keeps going, especially once the referrals get kicked in.
0: Yeah. And we're getting so many referrals. It's like, I've had to shift my, we have a a thing called prioritize and execute. Like it's a common military phrase. I've had to prioritize and execute on fundraising. So like, that's what I'm doing right now. I know I've teased fundraising. I think I even talked about it in the last uh, podcast. I didn't really take it seriously. We've been completely customer focused. And I've personally had to shift that in the past, like two weeks to being just fundraiser focused. So it's our fundraising focus, which is interesting because like we're getting so many referrals, like behind this screen, I have a whiteboard of names. I have a Salesforce and everything too, but like I have a whiteboard of names that are like, I need to be crossing off like three or four every day. So that even when we do raise money that these customers are just lined up, right? Like we're we're actually moving through them. But that's so much more exciting for me and motivating every day to be like, look, we're actually building a business here. We're building a company and you know, with this next, W- wrapping up our our final pre-seed raise, which is right now we're raising 200k. Our goal with that is is by this summer we're going to convert five to fifteen of our business clients or B two B clients and twenty five um, private clients. And you know at that point we'll be like I don't know we'll we'll have everything we need to know in the market to to actually build the software on the side that we want to build it on and and to like scale and grow it. I don't know. It's 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 cool. It's cool to have direction and like have the problem be like resources. Like, oh, we the lawyers aren't going as fast as we need them to, or the hey, I need two more people, but we don't have the cash yet. As opposed to not knowing what we were building.
1: So tell me, tell me what those uh, customers are buying now. I know the the website has shifted a lot since the last time we talked, and and it's sort of really well merchandised now, and it looks like it's just sort of booking through to to ca- it's just like introducing services and booking through to Calendly feels like a totally reasonable kind of early pipeline thing this very customer focused demand focused as you said
0: it's demand focused the website that you can see which is com, is really just like one of the products that we brought to market so i'll talk about that first which is high net worth and ultra high net worth focused risk reduction programs and so what that means is the client is getting some kind of a risk assessment so a home threat assessment a whole life threat assessment where we're taking diplomatic security solutions and bringing that to the private side. And what's cool about that is we're actually using the people who've done diplomatic security for diplomats, right? And so it's also cool because most people, even even wealthy individuals, aren't going to like rebuild their entire house. They're not going to build an embassy, but they do need some added security to kind of hit table stakes or what we think is table stakes for for a safe, risk-free environment. We call it living worry-free. But that's the same thing with our diplomats overseas. You can't like rip down the chateau in France and like build a new one because you're you're an, you're an ambassador or something. Instead, you have to add these layers of security in that are kind of invisible, but allow the, the principle to be protected. So we're doing that and that's really what we've been selling. So we've been selling that. We've also been selling some event security. And so with event security, it's it really in both cases, it's we are actually more of a consulting or value-add reseller. Where we're we're connecting the client to integration partners who are the ones, let's say, uh, putting anti-shatter film on glass for someone's home or installing a new set of cameras or, you know, one home we're putting in these really beautiful custom-built doors that latch a different way that allows them to prevent a six-year-old from breaking in, which was Kind of what was possible before <laughs> and so like so it's kind of like our little internal brokerage or marketplace for that thing mm-hmm. for that space and then the 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 second or the upgrade product from that and what we're trying to sell and we have a lot of deals kind of in the works we haven't closed in yet are the idea of like international security management so you sign up for fam- we have on the website it's called family protect plan which is where we do a whole life risk assessment across your family including your kids and anybody in in that that circle. And then anytime someone travels overseas, anytime they're in some kind of a risk situation, you've got expert counsel from us, but we're also going to actually white glove manage a security solution. So if you go to Mexico and you fit inside of our category, we're probably not going to let you go, or at least we're going to tell you not to, unless we put a couple of things in place. And then for that part of the business model, the retainer or the subscription is is for Conteras Consulting. It's not for the actual end like a uh, person on the ground and so that's going to be like a co- a cost plus situation where we we find you the vendor, we manage the vendor, we make sure they show up and all those kinds of things. We replace them if they if they're not what you expected or or they treat you poorly, etc. but but we're just going to we're going to invoice that to you and then add a small percentage of of overhead. So yeah, so those are the two, those are the two products on the website really. We also have quite a few special projects going and the business side is more like the B2B side is more we've got that these are the bigger contracts. Like we have one in the works. Like it's anywhere between three and nine million dollar contract for a multi year period with the top with the top tech company in the valley. If if that closes, you know, on the surface it'll look like a like a regular security contract, right? We have to be um, licensed in California to take the contract because we have to be able to hold the liability as part of the deal and so on. But Internally, we're going to be staffing and running the project a lot, a lot like differently than what our competitors would. Right. First, we're not going after the same size margins. Second, we're going to be using our prototype software to be able to for any of the contingent work, which is every time the executives travel outside California or outside the country or go to events, we're going to be gig kind of like internally gig staffing all those things. And then same thing with the vendors. Now it's it's going to be with a very small pool of vendors and people these are people that we trust to treat our customer really well in other words they might as well be W2s or they might as well be on our team but the idea is that that's a way we can prototype it and we've been having conversations with like with these bigger companies and one of the things that I learned is that you know getting a big uh, a large corporation onto this platform is very different than getting a private individual i mean we know that but the big difference is that if if it, if, if the product they're paying for is over 100k it's gonna take a really long time before their boss is gonna let them buy that with a credit card and no RFP process, which is what we wanna get to. We wanna get to the point where you could say like, Cantera is the RFP process because they've already have all these reviews and you choose the one that makes most sense. But because that doesn't exist yet, this is a new way to buy, pretty much we can only, or I expect we'll only have like more of an open marketplace style tool for those security managers for purchases under 100K. So like, that's like, like one that I just heard was, was, was an executive that purchased, you know, a type of psychographic assessment. He purchased like seven of them at once. They were like 70 or 10 of them at once. They were like 7,500 apiece. So it's like, you know, 75 grand, right? He could have bought that through the platform. He could have been connected to that vendor and bought it through the platform with a credit card. But if that same client wanted to go run a multi-year executive protection project and, and the actual owner of that project is going to have to be an RFP contract. And so we're, we're competing to win some of those contracts as well, which will allow us to one, get some name brand customers, two, bring in a whole lot more revenue. But three, I think it's going to let us kind of eat our own dog food, right? Like see if the tool actually is that much better than what currently exists.
1: It's really interesting to see where you fit into where where you're either forced or choose to kind of fit into existing processes and structure versus where you're like this is a place that we can innovate and find margin and use technology. Right, like the the example that came to mind for me was like early days of Open Door. The like customer would go book on the website and like reserve a table. Not sorry, not Open Door, Open Table would like reserve a table, make a reservation at a restaurant, and then. OpenTable on the back end would like fax them a reservation because that was how right. restaurants like took in reservations. Like yeah. that was their system. And it was like OpenTable's responsibility to bridge that gap while they were building the marketplace and then slowly accrue sort of the market power and reputation to replace more and more things with technology and like claw that margin back inside the company, which is really interesting. It's just, it just kind of sounds like the same thing. You have to go compete and win a contract in a very traditional RFP process. Mm-hmm then use your own marketplace internally, and that helps you build up that vendor supply side of things and build trusted relationships and inventory on that side. And then you'll just kind of slowly shrink the manual steps in between, and then there's a marketplace.
0: I mean, that's right on. And I think what we'll find, what we need to know by the end of the series seed, right? So let's say we, so to tell a whole fundraising story right now, the way I look at it is 200K gets me, depending on, how we roll it—it it adds an additional five to eight months of runway, and with that, the goal is those five business customers and twenty-five consumer customers bringing in somewhere around two hundred fifty k of revenue for this year. But all of that isn't the kind of traction or, or learnings that we need to understand what, like, what type of market, what type of marketplace this is at the end, right? But with the next round, which we'd want to raise um, at the end of this year let's call it like 1.5, two and a half million, that capital has to teach us whether or not we're CarMax or Uber, right? CarMax is we own the entire client experience and then we fulfill it with vetted stuff and connecting all these different dots. They they have regulatory capture because they run all of your, they literally hand you an envelope with like all the stuff so that you can register your car right, you know? like yeah
1: they become your limited power of attorney with like, right? it's awesome like they actually, take yeah. it
0: all over so are we that or are we like a B2B version of Uber where security managers at companies are using us as a tool to book all their stuff we might be both i don't know but i think i think right now the the open table example is perfect because we really are we're going to be like look we get this big contract We have to run part of it like a regular security company, but then the rest of it, every time we travel, it's like, cool, we're going to 60 countries over the next two years. Well, we're going to have a gig marketplace in 60 countries by the time we're done because we had to vet, you know, five different vendors for each of those places and then choose one. And then we're going to, we're going to, I mean, those vendors want to make money. We're going to make them make the money through the platform. We're like, sure, we'll pay you. The invoice is on here. You got to download the app, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah. I think last time you talked about some of the other marketplaces, vertical specific marketplaces, labor marketplaces or staffing agencies that you looked at. Do you know what their sort of bootstrapping process was? Like how they grew into the actual marketplace model? Is it similar to what you're doing here or the dynamics of those industries different?
0: So I, I'm, I mean, every industry is certainly different. I'm sure we're also more the same than we think we are too. And I don't know that I can speak to them well. I would say that with like, from the outside looking in with rig up, it definitely felt like more of an open marketplace, but then it closed. So it was like the opposite direction. Rig up being the marketplace for oil and gas drilling professionals. It's like, it seems like how it started was get a profile on here. And then like, we're just gonna get you through the door or whatever. Now it, it, it feels a whole lot more like a, we get you a job. So you just need to maintain your profile on here. And the only people that are actually looking at it are our internal staff and some kind of an automated thing. And then we are a direct staffing organization. And I was actually talking to Kurt the other day. I was like, I'm not even sure Rig Up, and somebody from Rig Up, please give me a call. I would love to talk about it. I can't tell if, if the end client ever does the work themselves or if Rig Up actually ends up providing the whole project. And, and I don't know. And I think we're gonna find that we're in the same situation. It's like some companies are gonna want like a vendor on-premises that manages everything. Other companies are already going to have somebody who does that, and they're just going to want to be able to get the little a la carte things that they want.
1: Yeah, definitely different kinds of customers, you know, if they already have people in-house managing security, if it's a one-off event, if it's a private individual. So how did you align on these two sort of like the home security audit and the family protection as, you know, the, the right spearheads the right first products to offer.
0: Yeah. So first I'll talk about why consumer first or retail first instead of business first. Mm. And that was, sure. cause that's kind of the, the foundation there is sales cycle. I just knew from my experience doing enterprise sales at a Creed AI that I was like, look, <laughs> if we only have this much runway, it's January and we're, we're going to run out of money. We need traction. And a bunch of conversations with, you know, it doesn't matter what company it is, aren't enough for me. I don't, it wasn't foundational enough for me to learn anything or to get it closed. Consumers, man, they'll they'll tell you exactly what they think right away, even before they buy it. Like I learned so much from all the uh, customer interviews we've done since January. So then we looked at it and went, well, what what is gonna help us build a top tier brand so we can charge more and so that we have the ability to move into the business, the B2B side? So it was like, well, well, what's a product that we can charge a lot for? So who has a budget? And then the second piece was what's something that we can be like the best at right from the beginning and, and like actually compete in the market. We're not like faking it till we make it. Like we've got it like handled. And so the people with the budget are the, in, in, for security in, in the private sector are only wealthy people. And so that was step one. It was, okay, so we're going to serve wealthy individuals. Now, definition of is, wealth is that like, could be anywhere, but.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, is that like, you know, where, where does that start? Where, where does the security concern, I guess, start at, as a wealth level.
0: Let's actually put a pin in that for one second because I'll I'll dive into sure. it. I want to finish, okay. right, right. finish <laughs> the other side, which is <laughs> so we we picked the the market we thought was right, which is these these people that are high enough value that security is something they'll they'll pay for. And then the second was something that we could do the best at. And having Kurt just joined the team and I had done a home threat assessment in the past and saw like that there was a profit margin there. I was like, man, talk about good timing. This is a guy connected directly to Di- diplomatic security that like professionally does home threat assessments and risk assessments at buildings. And he's been phenomenal at helping build out that product and using his network and expertise to build that even better. I mean, we've we've taken our the assessments we've done so far to like people who are really doing this work other places going and and their review has been like you your guys are nailing it. Like it couldn't be more than this. And so it's good to have a product that's like the best in that space. And then and and then the subscription side to it, that actually came from a client. That was me talking to somebody and a high end or a high net worth individual who was like, hey, rather than me like just paying you for this one off thing and, and like maybe securing my house, it's like, I actually have a lot more concern when I travel. Like what if I just paid like some subscription and then I, anytime there's a problem, I can call you. If I'm stuck on the border in Mexico, I can call you if I can. So you're always on the phone. And then he, he actually said like, I know a lot of these wealthy people, whatever, nobody has a like a phone number they can call to solve, to like to fix these problems. And I was like, well, we can do that. We have a network of fixers. <laughs>
1: I think you described this to me. I, I think we talked like offline in, in January or February or something. And you were kind of like describing this like, I think you call the net jets for private security. Right. That's like, this is your phone number. This is your, like, we'll give you a travel plan. And then we're basically like fixers. Like, do you have an altercation with like anybody, local police in a foreign country? Do you end up in, like in jail? Did you get kidnapped? Like all of this stuff that is just like, you worry about it but then you're kind of like i actually don't know how to de-risk that so like (laughs) fuck it i guess (laughs) um, yeah if you get a DUI in the us
0: and you're one of these wealthy individuals like you already have a lawyer that you're going to call like literally you know the name you probably have done a bunch of other things you know mr lawyer hey this is what just happened help me out what's my first step right now before i even get out of the car and they'll tell you and we want to be that for security problems
1: which is interesting like i didn't even know that that was a thing that money could buy frankly like i didn't know that if you have somebody like you or kurt or like in your corner that you're there's somebody that you can call who can call the state department who can like mobilize the united states <laughs> to protect you no matter where you are in the world like that is the most baller i have ever heard and i didn't even know that money could buy it
0: which is which is funny because it's very qualitative right it's hard to measure what it really is because what it's actually is a mass is a is a very strong network of relationships because until we're much bigger until we have a footprint where we actually have an office at every country or whatever the way we're solving these problems is through the consulates it's through the embassies it's through uh, the 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 regional officers and all these places that we can get directly connected that we have relationships with we're also involved in some programs where we get intelligence from some of these organizations as well so like we're we're like really tied into that space which al- allows us to solve those problems i will say that you know i found competitors right like uh, along the way and there are definitely other groups that have that are doing this that have done it and uh, it's interesting that most of them that i that i've found first have all been bought it's like these companies pop up they they're this international like solve your security problems sort of thing And then two years later, they get bought by Securitas or by D4S or somebody. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a cool product. We, you know, we'd love to have a couple more customers, but the, the home threat assessment side is just, it's kind of the first marketing tool for that, right? It's like you, you're working with these people, helping them solve their, you know, the way we, the way that I describe it is your home is your castle. Everybody says that, but most houses, even expensive ones are so poorly protected that, you know, a teenager can break in, in, in moments. And so step one is to get your home to like table stakes. Like how do we make it so that your doors are locked and they can't just be kicked in? How do we make it so that when uh, someone hits the glass of your of your patio, the alarm is already going off. So their their timeline is already ticking and they can't get in. So three minutes later, they leave rather than, than intruding in your home. That seems to be the first step. And then from there... You know we've had quite a few good conversations about travel security, like vacation security and those kind of things. And when I say security, what I mean is more guidance than anything else. The majority of places people go, they don't need a security guard unless they are a certain type of person. Going back to your other question, they do need to know where not to be. They do need to know where the English-speaking doctors are. They do, uh, they should have a partner for medical concierge and for for you know crisis management if they have to get evacuated or if anything goes down or goes wrong. And that we can provide, I mean, we can provide, we can provide that today, just about anywhere in the world, bring it all the way back. That's why the two products, we knew we could do both products really, really well. We could do it right now. We can serve the customer's premium class and they have the budgets to pay for it.
1: Budgets, short sales cycle. They're both, they both have the potential to be purchasing the same products, um, Mm -hmm. generates revenue. Like, do you have your eyes on? I mean, I was just kind of doing the napkin math here as you were talking. I was like, do you have your eyes on reaching sort of su- enough revenue that you're sustainable? Or are you, uh, but you're also talking about fundraisers. Like, are you trying to reach break even on these services and then sort of like reassess? So or are you uh, like, the way that I, all I'm, in venture?
0: yeah, the, you know, it's, it's taking a multi-billion dollar vision because we're talking about a $50 billion industry with a 70% rake. So thirty six billion dollars, forty percent of that is taken by no value add middlemen conglomerates that just subcontract. So the, that right there is what twenty one billion. So if we reduce that forty percent rate to ten or 25, 10 to twenty five percent, we're talking about five to fifteen billion in revenue, right? So that is a that's a good target that we want to get. We'll never get to fifteen billion in revenue doing home threat assessments, right? It's an incredible marketing tool that doesn't mean we can't be capital efficient with that business line, right? And so we definitely, w- we want that to be a profitable, at least break even, but hopefully a profitable you know, business center. And we expect that it's gonna drive a ton of our business for a long time. I mean, it's already driven the B2B side because every single person we're talking to on the consumer side owns a business or is an executive at a business. You know, I've done the math on it too. And it's like, even if we, let's say we, so we we enter this market at like the 10 to 20K target for a home threat assessment. That pricing is likely off. We found that just for the assessment, just for this report, 10 or 20K is really high compared to other similar services that these customers are paying for. Other similar services you might think of, like physically it would be like uh, getting your audio installed in your house or getting the electric blinds put in different you know interior design stuff and so us coming in and being like look we want to add we're going to add this new thing that you never heard of before and we're going to add it into your home build and we're going to charge more than all your other vendors are charging for their service was a little bit off the difference there being that if we're also providing integration support meaning we work with their estate managers we work with their their general contractors and so on to coach them to to fix the problems that we've recommended. And then we go back out and visit the homes or whatever, and we kind of audit it along the way. We see another high margin, short term project there. And then hopefully we, we convert them to some kind of subscription security concierge service, right? Which is what we're pulling on to. But I guess coming full circle to can this be like a profitable, strong business on its own? gets back to your first your earlier question which is like how much money do you have to have like how much money does somebody have to have to to pay for this service i would say we're targeting people with non-primary homes so it's, you know vacation homes best if they've got five okay if they've got one you've got to have a quite a bit of cash to go buy a second house in in a place like malibu or miami so so that market is what it is that's a great market for the travel security thing. These are all people who are also spending a lot of money going overseas. They're paying thirty thousand dollar down payments for a trip to alaska. They're paying like like you know they're they're already spending money on that so what's what's another grand to make sure that that trip has some kind of evacuation insurance and k and r insurance and you've got some guidance right? and then we can you know build a little profit margin in there. But for the home threat assessment itself, if we wanna grow that, we have to charge less. Let's say we're targeting five grand, we're marketing it really well, we're going after the $208,000 million plus homes sold every year, that could turn into a real, bus- a real business. If, if, we, if we got to the point where our assessors were regional, so let's say we have, you know, you're no longer gonna get a, a Secret Service guy to your house, but maybe you've got, the Secret Service guy is the one who audits the report afterward and makes the recommendations. The person at your house is gonna be somebody who's like 1099, wearing a Conterra a polo and has been trained well, probably a veteran or law enforcement veteran, but you know maybe not a top tier person. They're gonna to come to your house, they'll be there for five, six hours. If we got to the point where, I mean, $5,000 times, what, 10,000 homes a year is a $50 million business. So that's, that is cool. The challenge I see with it is getting there is a very long bootstrap story. Like every way I've built it, it's like, man, how do we get to four? How do we get to eight? How do we get to 25? How do we bridge the gap between hiring people so that they're ready to do it? Like, I mean, we just did one in Malibu and it ended up costing us a ton because it was like right away, two flights from different states, hotels, car, all that. And then doing the assessment, I, I added in a bunch of other business stuff while I was there, but it was like. Jeepers! Like we got to make at least twenty percent on this, like you know, <laughs> and like yeah, I, 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 I'm just, I was just imagining like if we had to do, like twenty of those in a month, I was like, holy crap, that would be a lot of a lot yeah. of work. So the unit economics require
1: scale for that to be a business. And there's plenty. I mean, you've got opportunities to reinvest in technology and, and streamline process, as you said. And then you know, you're not. What's interesting to me about this story so far is, is that we are still like bezo says this thing like uh stubborn on the vision flexible on the details mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm sure you've heard before and you're already smiling at mm-hmm. me uh which, which i love like are like we will build a like you know five to fifteen billion dollar a year marketplace that removes the fat cat poorly run mm-hmm. middlemen that's just a garbage process and cruft and mess in this legacy industry but i'm gonna try Anything that we have to do in order to like establish all those beaches and get those wedges in and keep expanding and keep building, you know, the vendor side and the brand and the relationships and the customer trust into that. And I mean, you can stack up a few like this is if you have one, you know, the home audit is security audit is one profitable ish or break even business line, mm-hmm. but it's still accruing value to that fundamental marketplace behind it. You can keep starting new versions of that and over and over again, like each each of those processes accrue and you're just building this giant snowball marketplace behind it. Exactly. It's, it's hard to do both of those things at once, but the, the prize for doing it is huge.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't say it before, but the other thing that all of these products have in common is that by the time the product is fully delivered, we've worked with multiple vendors and people meaning we had one client that we had to connect to a bunch of different service providers that's the marketplace right so home threat assessment we're now working with like 7 different companies for different integration things for that that fix to to bring the security to table stakes for travel security management we've got you know partners in africa partners in in latin america and in mexico and europe like every single transaction we have with every single one of those vendors is building our relationship as a connector and so that's even cooler right so if if every product we deliver ends up being one that connects one side of the market the demand side to all these different suppliers we're just like we're just manually building a market you know, and it's cool, too, because I think it's an expanding one, right? Like, so I especially on the high net worth side, I think we're going to expand the security market. Most people in the I bought a million dollar house category, but I'm not a 10 plus millionaire don't realize or don't think they can get access to a top tier security design plan for their home for a couple grand, five grand. I think that's a new market. I think we get into there. It's like people are paying a, a thousand bucks to ADT to have, to have somebody literally come into their house with a bunch of gear and be like, well, what do you want? I want cameras. <laughs> uh, okay, well, where do you want them? I don't know. Isn't that what you're <laughs> supposed to tell me? Right, right? Like, yeah. oh, we'll put up three just to make you feel better. You know, like yeah. having that, that thing, like I think we'll expand that market and along the way, I mean, we're talking about going to, into three markets right now, but let's say we get to 50 states. I mean, we'll have thousands of vendors that were that were bringing business that were're just directly bringing business to them right That's a mark that's that's how we get to that point where you no longer need to hire a massive contract with a global security vendor. instead, you'll be able to go right to the small medium business that actually does the work and you'll save a ton of cash so higher quality better experience, lower price. I mean, that's how you make money out of nothing, right? That's the whole Bill Gurley Absolutely. thing.
1: <laughs> and so inside the company, like what, what do the operations look like now that this is kind of the primary focus on the demand side? You've got Kurt in there. You're worried about fundraising or working on fundraising now, primarily like, you know, how, how has the process evolved now that you've kind of got a, a pipeline of these to, to manage? You said, and in, in you're in three markets, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, so we we want to build three markets. We're in like seven markets because we're just, you know, we're taking whatever deal, right? And right now we're flying. The idea is that by the, you know, by the end of the summer, first of all, I won't be on any assessments anymore. And like I may I don't know if I'll ever be on another one again. I probably will be, but we'll also we hope to hire a local person in each of those three markets who can cover the majority of the 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 assessments this year. But they'll be able to manage ten ninety nines to start scaling that. Like they'll be, they'll start as the regional assessor, but they'll become the regional manager. So that's how that little business is going to build. Operation side, you know, really it's split in half between like like admin, sales, and fundraising is me, and kind of the back end of each opportunity we have. It's it's Kurt doing the due diligence on how we're getting it done whether that's for a large, you know, EP contract, executive protection contract, or it's another threat assessment somewhere. And then the threat assessments themselves, he's the one that's jamming on the keyboard and working with other 1099s and people that, that in his circle to make sure that each, each assessment's done all the way to the highest quality. That's how it is now. Honestly, I think these next five months, like our, we're going to be wearing a lot of hats, of course, but like, we're not going to get to hand them to anybody. I don't want, I don't want to add, more W-2 payroll until, especially inside like one of those little business, like little business. It could be a fifty billion, million business. That's not little, but like, like I'm not gonna W-2 somebody into that until like that's literally something until that can to pay itself, that pay for, that them, pay yeah. for itself. Yeah. Like that's the, like what I said earlier, like that's the 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 careful capital allocation to grow out that that business where, you know, Maybe at the end of the summer, we we might hire somebody who can still serve across different categories inside the in, inside of our company for the for for the, I guess, whatever project we're working on. And I don't expect to to like really grow the team until until seed round, right? Until the end of the year.
1: How, how much? How is the launch New York experience? Yeah. It's a little accelerator incubator thing you went through the last couple of months? Yeah. So or is that not started yet?
0: No, it has started. So Launch New York is a okay. is a program that New York State funds. And I might get it wrong, but you can go to launchnewyork.org to, to see the details. But it's a really cool it's a really cool organization. They've got like a grant or, or government kind of funded seed investing thing. And then they've also have a private investor group that then tries to like double that amount and come in to help support the your early raise, something between like fifty to 200k worth of cash or something. But what they they've done really well is they built a strong network of they call them EIRs, like entrepreneurs and residents, but I compare them, I mean they're mentors, right? So like Mike Bovolino who's who's my mentor there is like the best best outcome of joining Watch New York is having this guy who's been an executive at multi-billion dollar companies. He's he's gone through the gamut of a of a strong career and having it, it you know instantly having a mentor that gives me time is great. Not only that, but Launch New York pays their their mentors for consulting time as well. So if I want to actually dive into something and book a real consulting session with him or with somebody else, they cover that. So it's a cool piece of like support. Yeah. I, I've been in like the kind of the startup community builder scene now, ever since I left San Francisco. And I've met with so many people and and it really seems like Launch New York is doing something Pretty well. They're they've got a strong portfolio. They have, a, I think, at least one or two Western New York unicorns in their little in their portfolio. Every other organization don't kill me here, but I don't know that I've seen another government funded organization that's that's actually had such a, a cool impact.
1: I would say it's hit or miss on some of the the public startup focused stuff. You I'm know, also in a very with, very with bureaucrats small running them in space. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I you know, I've only seen a few too, but it's, it's you know, yeah, hit, hit or miss. Let's call it hit or miss <laughs> generously. Yeah, I
0: would definitely recommend anybody um, in Western New York to to apply for Launch New York if you've got a company that can make more than $10 million. I think their minimum is you're targeting at least a $10 million business in seven years. Oh, okay. Um, so so, so, yeah, so you don't have to have a billion dollar idea, ventures. but you've got to be building something that can grow to, you know, a full yeah. team. It's not like a one person consulting company or something.
1: Got it. Okay. The, the Another one of the bullets you, you dropped me here in prep was spent a little too much time on, on shiny object deals. Mm. What were the, what were the shiny objects? I think this is, this is a perennial challenge in especially this like early ambiguity thing where you're like, Ooh, ooh revenue potential. Yeah, like, woo. yeah, it's hard to resist the, you know, going down those rabbit holes.
0: So I think I would, I'd qualify that bullet a little bit, which is it's not that I f- that I that I went for some shiny objects is that I spent too much time on them. I know that's what I said, but like the, there's a key there, which is some of those shiny objects are turning into deals. The problem was if I spent two weeks and all I thought about, talked about, riffed about our 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 15 minute stand up turned into an hour of ideating on some shiny object. Right. So like one we're working on is you know, two billionaires who are buying this massive airplane that's been converted into a a like live-in four-bedroom suite, you know, Air Force One style aircraft to go travel the world and visit all these different countries over the next couple of years. I was like, man, this is it, right? This is like a one, $1 to $2 million a year deal to do executive protection for these people. We're going to get to work with vendors in all these different countries, going to help build the marketplace side. Like, man, this is it. But that sales cycle—I mean, we've pretty much won. But there's a thousand things that slow down billionaire adventures, right? Like their businesses, like the war in Ukraine actually uh, confiscated the airplane, so now they got to buy another airplane. Like, like all the—they're <laughs> not—they're not Russians, but like they had there was like a title problem with with a Russian oligarch, and so like the all these things got in the way. And when I looked back, I was like, man. I could probably uh, fit into three hours all the actual work I put in on that project. Maybe ten, because I, I went to some consultants and friends, and like we built out like how we would do the project and so on. But man, did I waste a lot of time ideating and talking and dreaming about it because of that revenue um, perspective. And I think that's been the case with a lot of the the B two B deals. And what we learned, and it's been going well. Like we just had one walk in the door. That's the largest deal we could could have. I mean, it's like a 9 to $12 million deal. It would close this fall. We're like being coached through it. But fortunately, I've had enough of those not pan out in the past, you know, four months or whatever that I'm like, I'm just, I'm doing it professionally and correctly the same way that I did when I didn't own the company at Accrete, Right and being like let's just we just put it through the process we we don't have a sales playbook but i know a general enterprise sales playbook we're going to work that we get to a certain point along the way we may hire a consultant or two to help us really nug down on pricing and 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 make sure the proposals are are you know beautiful the way they need to be but like i can't just every day think about it like if i think about that it's like everything else wouldn't be important. Cause you'd be like, well, $12 million, who cares about that other, that home threat assessment? It's like, well, the vision is all this other stuff that we're trying to build. And yeah, that's the shiny object problem, especially with enterprise sales, man. How many founders have all of us talked to that are like, bro, we got 20 million in pipeline. It's like, yeah. well, good, keep talking about it. Like let's, <laughs> what are you delivering? And it's, and it's... What are you building? You know, et cetera.
1: It's two $10 million deals that like the odds that you actually win them, like the expected value of the pipeline is like 20K, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just Because they're, it's a 1% chance at, at $20 million, or which is it's, definitely different.
0: It's exactly so. What I've been doing in like my Salesforce model is like rounding down the expected cash to the lowest I think is possible for us to accept the deal. So, not what we think it's going to be, but like what's the lowest we would do the deal for? And then we've got our stages built out. So like the percentages don't go up very fast. They just don't, they don't go up fast enough until, until signatures are on a piece of paper. I think we're still at, we're at like 20% until after we have like an LOI and we've established a multi-person, like champion team in, inside the company. And so you're like that, a lot of Salesforce models will put that at like 70%. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Well, well, we're a brand new company. There's like a thousand reasons that like somebody would walk in the room or pass the, the glass door and be like, hey, go with that other company. And we're like, oh, well, shit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's, it's it's really interesting that That's there's a good nuance of like, it's not that you shouldn't have done it. It's that it could have been more efficiently done, I suppose. I yeah. Think that's
0: a, I mean... Hundred percent. When you're when you're a two person team with some 1099s around, and everything comes down like what I should have been doing during that time, I should have taken half of the time I spent on that on on building more relationships with the people that I'm raising money from, right? Because I already know what my actual my priority my priorities are. Like I need to be able to pay payroll, and I need to sell deals. It's like, well, if I put all my time in selling deals that are going to take eighteen months, like I said, that was the consumer versus business side, right? like I don't get to pay payroll with those deals for another year. <laughs> so I got to raise money.
1: Interesting. Okay. Is there anything um else you want to cover, I mean on the like at the business level or strategy level? You know, it sounds like no no big change on the vision, only kind of refinements on the approach. We talked about the sales pipeline, we talked about the team. I want to, I want to do like a little bit on more personally on like you and your experience and your work habits and stuff like that. I don't know. Do you, maybe let's wrap up with like the, or the fundraise. You want to talk about the fundraise process so far before we yeah. put a cap on sort of the business chapter?
0: Yeah. I'll kind of summarize all of like how I feel as a business with the, with, in into the fundraise right now, which is our business is, is in 10 X better shape than it was in January, right? Like us. Pivoting to demand side first was very, it was another gamble, but it worked. And like now we know when we collect demand, vendors are talking to me, labor's talking to me. I have like 27 resumes for like the, the aircraft thing in, in a very short period of time. And these aren't like, these aren't joke resumes. These are like some of the best people in the world to go do that stuff. Like the supply just came. And so demand which, was right. Which...
1: Small note for anybody who doesn't either didn't listen to the second episode or doesn't remember it is that like when we last looked at this, we were like, oh, shit, we cannot accrue supply without a a present contract and demand to attach them. So like you Mm -hmm. couldn't add supply to this market without the presence of demand. So realizing that and shifting to demand first and seeing that supply really does appear when you have the demand is a huge, huge unlock counterintuitive to you know, what what we expected in the first episode and like what the strategy was in Q4. So that that is a huge like proof positive and and sort of like earned secret, I think.
0: Yeah. And and there's more nuance that's probably not worth filling up now. But like I've also learned a lot about like I think testimonials and brands and logos and other ways to build the trust I need with labor, who's a very specific type of I'm not going to. I'm not trying to put everybody in the labor side into one basket but there's a couple characteristics that kind of go across the board and there's different ways to get over that. And I think we've figured out what most of those are and so that, that that's a, a lot around this, the type of demand we're trying to bring in. So that was the big decision and then from there it's kind of just worked. Maybe maybe a tiny bit slower than I'd hoped for. Like I, maybe I would have wanted eight customers 2 weeks ago or 2 months ago instead of 2 weeks ago, but like it it happened. And so now we're we're at the point where we, w- we're, we really did. We went demand side first. We took some time to figure out which product we wanted to do. We took some time to build that out and talk to tons of people about it. And then we finally started saying, yes, we'll do it. We started doing it. Each of those has turned into more. Like every single home threat assessment turns into another home threat assessment. And that's allowed me to build the confidence and the kind of Testimonials needed to get the B2B conversations started because I, even though I'm not focused on them now, I still want them to close in a year, right? Like that requires the whole length. I don't want to wait forever. So it's kind of like I feel like all the traction has finally come together. We're f- like, you know, we actually should have, you know, five moving B2B clients and and 25 to I keep saying 25. I'm trying to undersell it it's very possible it could be up to like 50 of these of these private individuals right it's it's i think that honestly i think it's going to be limited by what we can what we can handle not how many customers that want to buy the home threat assessment product which is cool so all of that traction is wonderful but we have to pay payroll and that's where um i think my one mistake was just the timeline it, like I just felt so strong coming in, you know, raising the first 300K was was really easy. And the and so I just, I, I dove right into the customer side, we pivoted, we found the traction, and I expect this fundraise to be really easy as well. But like, I have to, you know, execute on it, like right now is like, so my focus has really shifted to fundraising so that we do have the the cash we need to actually serve all those those customers over the next you know, six, seven months. So we're raising 200K now, which will be the last money we raise inside of a pre-seed round. We're keeping it on a safe agreement. We're keeping it with the same terms that we raised the last 30K in January on. And we just opened it up this past Monday. I've been sending out new decks, sending out new exec summaries. So I'm excited for it. I mean, I'd love to close it in a couple of weeks. It would make it a whole lot easier for me to get back to work. But right now it's kind of like I owe my... I owe my director Robs and and you know his salary <laughs> you know I owe uh my wife a little bit of stability so I really I really have shifted my my focus for right now is telling the story hey we've got the traction now it's like first it was a dream and a vision and we did it wrong and then we shifted and now we've learned something and it's working so let's let's raise the capital needed so that come September August like we actually have the business that deserves two million dollars or more to to scale into 2023 so that's where we are
1: so yeah interest so use of funds on the pre-seed is like payroll for another six to nine months mm-hmm. to basically close all these the basically the sales pipeline get the cash in the door probably sounds like some sort of process optimization and maybe some of the technology stuff that you scoped out but really like set up for the the seed round, which would be much more the use of funds around like technology and sales infrastructure, and
0: yeah, I think I think like the I think the KPIs for the seed are going to be where we are on paper with business clients that are larger deals, where we are in revenue on customer on on private clients, and like how we've actually developed regions. I think a, a a really good bonus point there would be if we got. Uh, region specific enough over the next like four or five weeks that we actually could hire somebody that pays for themselves in in Miami or in Malibu. And it would, it would free up a lot of time for Kurt, which would be awesome. And then the, but we're, again, we're only going to do that if it pays for itself. The third thing that I do think is important is showing that we can build a no-code prototype and be using it for the vendor side. So like, that's also something that we're going to have to fit into these next, you know, six to nine months and you know we we may use some consultants to help us with that. I've been building some stuff myself, which is, I mean, honestly, Airtable is pretty straightforward. It's not like we're doing something crazy here. What we're doing is like keeping track of vendors, keeping track of reviews, of invoices, and like in documents. And then you know we want to you know we want we want to kind of patch it all together with Stripe so that we're actually processing the payment part through you know through an app through a Cantera app. Yeah, even if the only users are the actual current customers or current vendors.
1: Yeah, which is which is awesome. I mean, your your vision and your your and your in review thing was our top priority for 2022 is to establish repeatable transactions enabled by technology, and that's that's, that's it it in, in a nutshell.
0: That's what that's what we're gonna do.
1: Emphasize I'm gonna it. say something stupid, which is that you need some nutcase to kidnap Paris Hilton's dog and kick off like a whole. Oh man! Why uh, just the epidemic of fear about personal, you know, safety of of celebrities and billionaires?
0: All you have to do is read page six. I mean, there's there's like an intrusion, or like the Beckham's home just got got broken into. I mean, honestly, this stuff happens all the time. My investors are always sending me, are always send me famous people whose stuff's getting stolen or whatever. Like what, what we what we really need is is just to, we need to get in front of people so they realize they can solve the problem. I think most people don't realize yeah. they can solve it
1: let's let's uh do some some zach level stuff one of the other one of the other bullets you said in here was entrepreneurship is really hard, like surprisingly really hard <laughs> <laughs> which yeah which coming from a man who's you know at a ten year career as a navy seal says something, so I'm curious what's behind that that subtle little bullet point
0: yeah, so I think the big shift between so there's different types of hard right, and I think there was a uncomfortableness in the unknown for the first seven months out of the last ten months where it was hard not because of all the work I was doing or the time it took but because it was like what am I doing you know we're all we every three weeks we were learning from more customers that what we were doing was wrong or that you know hey even if we did that the unit economics wouldn't get us where we need to be et cetera so like that was one type of hard when I sent you that bullet, and I think where I am now is, it's like, it's like hard, but it's good. It's this the hard thing about hard things idea where, you know, we don't have the answers, but we have direction on everything we're doing, and we see the outcomes. But man, is there a lot of of stuff to do, and there's no shortcut. There is zero shortcuts. There's no like, oh, get a get somebody to start doing your LinkedIn outreach, or hey, get somebody in the and you know in another country to start making your phone calls it's like no right now every single phone call is me because they need my voice and my ability to have the authority to shift it you know the conversation where it goes in the company you know every single assessment has to be done really really well every time there's no there's no space for it not to be because we're, we're growing referral based and these are super these are customers that expect really high-end things which is the the downside of the market we entered, right? When you enter at the top, like they expect the best, and then add in the fact that you know I've got, I do have four kids, right? You know, one is now seven months old, born September twenty fourth, the last pod, or one of the
1: podcast dates. <laughs> uh, yes, the, the the very first episode was yeah. the yeah, the day okay. your daughter was it's born. Like,
0: See you later. I gotta go. Baby being born, <laughs> so we've got that. You know, the seven month old isn't isn't sleeping right now. You know, so she's going through that mm-hmm. phase, and we know the phase. We've been through all this. So before. neither are you. But that means I'm not sleeping, yep. right? And I'm still pulling. You know, I mean, Monday was an 18 hour day. Specifically, but there was a there's just things that you know they got to get done. And so the I think the hard part is that it's a grind. That um, like it's not like there's a light on uh, on the end of the oh, it's, it's almost Friday. I'll just, I'll just take it easy. It's like no, like I mean, my kids love that I took Sunday off because it was Easter and they were psyched, right? You know, and you might say, oh, Zach, you don't know have any work life balance. It's like, well, this is a season. It's a, it's not a forever season, don't get me wrong, like I, I, I heard, or no, I read, I think it's Andrew Chen who is at Uber talk about like those, those founders and like how they're like in a war room every day f- against Lyft and like it's just, it's nonstop, it was always nonstop, it continued to be, you know, I don't know what this thing will turn into, maybe it'll be that, but you know, right now it's just really hard. It's hard to balance the amount of different tasks in the company, add on family, and then add on like personal things like being in shape and staying fit. It's like, one, it's healthy for me. But two, my investors and clients expect me to be healthy, you know, like just based on the fact that I was a Navy SEAL and then I'm, I'm providing this type of work. Like they, they want to see somebody who, who is healthy.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's. And that's just part of the long-term nature of it, right? Like this is a marathon. Oh, if yeah. you burn yourself out and make yourself unhealthy, like. Right you know, that's going to that's gonna come back to bite you maybe at the time when you can least afford for it too. So I, I think that's always, it's a good way to force yourself into the meditation of the long-term nature of what you're doing. Like it, right. it feels like sprinting a marathon, but like taking the time to, you know, eat healthy, work out, stay active, stay sane, like pays off because it's a long game.
0: Yeah. You saying that made me think that part of entrepreneurship being hard is once you get in the thick of it, and I would say just now I'm really in the thick of it, even my time off i have to do well right i need to make sure that i'm resting well because if i take a break and i don't rest well and i drink too much or i i do something else then it makes the next 24 hours that much harder and each thing that much harder and and like i like i've been on the phone call it doesn't happen often but i've i've been on the phone call where i didn't have my energy. And so I knew that it was flopping as it was happening. And it's like, well, this company isn't going to make it if I'm flopping on a call with a partner or with a with a investor or with whoever. Cause you never know which one of those is going to be your deal, is going to be the, you know. And so like, yeah, the hard thing about about this is is all of it. Like everything. It's the unknown. It's the work life balance. It's the amount of effort. The other side though, is it's really rewarding. It's exciting. It's cool that like how much we've gained in this 10 months. I mean, oh my goodness, are we, have I learned so much? Are we so much better off? Like, dude, like it's, it's a whole nother world. And, and that's really cool. And it's exciting to see how all that's happening. My kids are getting used to it. And and the fact that like, I am still finding ways to dad every day, but they're seeing how hard I'm working and they're, and they're, they're cool. Like they'll, you know. You know, we, you know, we pray at dinner every day and my, my son will like pray for Cantera, Like, I hope dad's company does really well and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, Oh, Hey buddy. Thanks. You know, it's, it's, it's cool
1: and hard. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, the, the closer, the closer you get to the CEO of a startup and the more honest they are with you about how hard the thing is that they're going through. And that's, what's really interesting. Like, so CEOs are rarely straight up, full maximum honest with their employees. they they sometimes can't be and it sometimes it's the best thing to just keep a stiff upper lip and like mm-hmm. you know, stare straight ahead, hands on the wheel, like go through it and th- the closer you get and the more honest you get, the more you realize how inhumanly hard that job is and how much stress there is to it and how much ambiguity there is to it and how much just mental and emotional weight sits uniquely like founder CEOs who are raising money and hiring people and selling and like doing all of this stuff at once. So like, there's not a lot of people that appreciate it. And there's not a lot of people that understand, (laughs) like, when you look at cap tables and some people are like, I can't believe like, you know, I don't know, pick Travis Kalanick since you use Uber, like gets, you know, 10 times more than his you know, director of marketing, like, does he deserve that? And it's kind of like, actually, if you've seen these CEOs go through like the pinholes and like dark nights that they go through, like, fuck yeah. Like they do deserve orders of magnitude more compensation because the thing wouldn't exist without them willing it into existence. And it's like it. I hope people who have followed along on the story gather some shadow of that because I think empathy for that makes, uh, makes us all better, better employees, better investors, better customers, like appreciate more of the world that we see around us and the character that it takes to create some of the things that we take for granted if we don't pay attention to it.
0: One of the things you said there, like really hits it on the nail. It's that willing into existence thing. Like that's every successful company was willed. I mean, it was willed into existence when I mean, it's got to be why these top tier pre-seed investors that have like had multiple big wins, they always say it's about team. I mean, they they have pick people who are ready to will, like just do whatever it takes to get it done. Yeah, it's why like the work-life balance thing is like such a, a goofy topic for a founder because it's like, look, like, this is who I am, not just the company, but like this, like I do hard things. I've been doing hard things for the last, you know, 15 years, like. It's not going to stop. If I wasn't doing this, I'd be doing something else. that's super hard, but.
1: I remember asking you, like our first episode, I was like, Zach, why'd you join the Navy SEALs? You're like, well, I was in college and it wasn't hard. I thought it was going to be hard. It wasn't hard. I Googled <laughs> what's hard and I did the thing that's the hardest thing I could find to do. And of course, like what else would you do? It's obvious. <laughs> like, right. You're a beast.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like to think so. We'll see. Oh man, willing it into place. That's that's the phase we're in. I'm I'm about to will payroll into into existence for the next seven months.
1: I like it. Yeah. So I think I asked you this last time, but it could become a pretty good regular question. Is there anything that you have changed your mind on in the last three or four months? I don't know if this is a helpful, I don't know if it's a helpful prompt, but I remember last time you said you had some mottos or or like um, visions that you kind of kept revisiting. And I wonder if you've actually like added or removed any of those that you kind of your, your touchstones that you go back to, to kind of refocus and prioritize.
0: Yeah, so the motto stuff, I think, is really important, but it, I haven't used it for maybe the last two months. And I think the difference has been that the direction has become more clear and I've become so busy and I switched offices, so they're, they're not where they used to be. And so I kind of internalized those mottos. You know, the big one that like one way that I, I support my family is by creating a massively successful business and by giving it my all like having those things internal i guess that the shift is like i'm not i'm not repeating mottos every day i'm not reading those and and so so i guess that's a bit of a change i wouldn't be surprised if during another emotionally hard time if i get to one the difference between you know entrepreneurship is hard sometimes it's hard because of all the stuff other times it's hard because you're on an emotional roller coaster i'm not an emotional roller coaster right now which is nice like like I went lukewarm in the middle there for a minute. It was like, "Are we bootstrapping are I mean that one of the reasons that i I pushed fundraising off was like man we're we'll just get profitable. I had a lot of different people giving me advice in all these different directions, and I think coming out the other end of ten months as an entrepreneur, I've gotten a lot better at taking every piece of advice in, adding it to the group, but not taking any of it as like gold like there's no nobody knows how to run this business better than me and I'm only just learning how to build and run this business. Nobody else has been on the hundreds of calls with these completely different customers. Some asking for one thing, some asking for something else. Like other people tell me it is silly, it doesn't fit. Other people are like, man, I tried to build this myself inside of my organization. Like, like you know, you've got all these different people and then on the mentorship side, it's the same. You have mentors who like I really, really respect who you know are a lot more focused on, let's say passive wealth creation. Or like, you know, so they're like, man, can you turn this into a business where you you work four hours a week, right? You know, other people who are focused on, man, you got to build a social profile. So this, this and that, if it, like, so I think the big shift has just been like, I hear it all and I do my best to not make a pivot or take a quick reaction on any of it. and Really consider it, sometimes write it down. And like, that's been, I mean, that's been really, really important. There was a minute where like, well, we'll build a home threat assessment business. Like, if we can get this, if we can get this the size we need to and so on. But fortunately, we climbed out of that because having a super strong business line that does home threat assessment sounds great. But the reason we picked that was because we can fulfill the work with vendors for a marketplace. We can use it as marketing to get international security so that we can fulfill the work with vendors as a marketplace. Like, we can get into businesses that we can then start... Selling workforce management tools as we build them and everything else. So it's like, why let a tiny bit of success in one space push away the, the goal, which is a multi billion dollar company? Maybe the other thing I've learned is everybody says they want to build a one billion dollar or a multi billion dollar company. I do, right? I don't know if I've ever heard a pitch ever that somebody wasn't like, and we're <laughs> going to be a billion dollars in seven years. You know, I don't think most people believe it. And I definitely don't think most mentors believe it. And the mentorship part is where it's hard because mentors want what's best for you in a lot of ways, right? They want you to be successful. They want your family to be successful. They, yeah, they want you personally. And that's so important. And they have so much more experience, right? They also went through the billion dollar dreams, right? Most of them. And maybe it's because I don't have a billionaire mentor, right, who did it, who actually got to that point but I think the majority of the of the of the one-liners and wisdom that I've had to like take and couch for later has been stuff that actually takes away from my multi-billion-dollar vision, and so that's been a shift in my own my own like filter system.
1: Yeah, because one of your mottos was was like, "We are building a venture-scale billion-dollar-plus mm-hmm. enterprise value." Like right,
0: and if you f- you mean people who love me dearly are, are are like that's cool man but like man you could sell this come if you get that contract man you could sell it oh, you'll have five million bucks you can go buy your the bass boat like you're gonna you're set and it's like well, sure but that's not what i'm trying to build I, i'm already set i have a, a house in rochester new york with a you know the mortgage is like the what it costs to like get a a gym subscription in san francisco like, you know, I'm, I'm good, <laughs> right? What I want is to build a badass company, our new um, mission, the way we've put it, is where we're increasing the quality of life of one million workers in the men and women in the security industry, while making the purchase um, process less complicated and cheaper. So the outcome is quality obviously the mission's written better than that but like that's the idea is like we're we're going to impact a million people on the worker side and we're going to completely change a dirty industry like i i always come back to this one liner from one like executive security manager that i met who said the private security industry is a dirty industry of relationship arbitrage and i was like let's fix it like that's they there's come on it's it's 2022 like this industry has no transparency, software, anything. Like it's crazy.
1: Yeah, no reviews, no no Carfax, no CarMax, no no <laughs> well lit, right. safe marketplace, no it's, accumulating information anywhere, no directory. It's like, nuts,
0: man, I mean, there's literally yeah. there's people running security at massive firms, massive companies that have zero experience. And I'm not saying that they're not good managers, which is probably what they do today. But somewhere along the line, they were responsible for the safety of assets and people they had no idea how to protect, none. And that's because it's, it's, a, it's a, like an edge industry that people purchase for a bunch of different reasons, liability, asset protection, whatever, with no experience buying. They don't know how to buy it. Nobody knows how to buy it. They they need a Carfax report. They need reviews. They need somebody to coach them there and not take a forty percent cut off the top.
1: Yeah. I I, and I love that increasing the quality of life of the one million men and women who work in the security industry. Like put it put it on the deck. Um it is. And 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 hopefully like Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, like I I mean I hope that helps that should speak to everyone involved in the industry too, right? Like that is, that is the kind of sort of principled stand that earns you like market leadership. I think if you if you execute on it in every, you know, message and way and means that you that you have, like in all those relationships, which, you know, start starts with phone calls, which is exactly what you're doing. Right. Like that's why you have to be on all these calls. You know, like mm-hmm. you want everybody who works with Contera to understand those that vision from early on and appreciate the values that you're operating with.
0: Uh, And if we take that as the North Star, we're going to increase the quality of life of these million people. And we use that as a filter for everything we do. It's very clear that quality comes alongside that, that customers getting treated well comes alongside that, that transparency comes alongside that. Like All the other stuff kind of comes in line.
1: To reach a million, you need the scale that technology gets you and and that that reinvestment gets you.
0: Um, Yeah. And the the market's about 2 million people today. So, you know, saying 50% of that, what I'm actually, I'm not saying I'm only going to get 50% of the market. I I mean, LinkedIn has more than 50% of the market for for their category. I think we're going to take the whole market. I just think the market's going to reduce because the quality is going to go up. We're going to find that the majority of projects that currently get staff of 40 people get staff with 25 but all 25 of those people have livable wages instead of getting paid 14 bucks an hour with 300 percent churn. i mean
1: yeah with a lot of weird i mean you've got i think in the first episode we talked a lot about like part-timers and sort of transient unqualified people who work in this industry you know kind of on shift or event basis who really haven't been trained but they need bodies and seats or in in shirts. Uh,
0: I mean, don't you want the security so. at the stadium you're going to watch a football game in to like be qualified? Like,
1: yeah, I, I think of the GIF of the guy doing the pat downs without even like touching people. Um, I right. <laughs> I mean, that.
0: that's a great example. And <laughs> yeah. and, and like, yeah. what's funny about that is higher the higher quality guards and higher quality managers and security professionals in a space like that. Like the answer to that, that meme might not be a full hard pat down of every single person. It might actually mean a metal detector. You know, it might actually mean a wand because a wand would work versus what they're using. Like, like, but somebody has to have the experience and the credentials and professional capability to, to look over at their boss and be like, you realize we can't actually hard pat down 20,000 people. Like it's not possible hey you realize that we're not actually doing anything here right and like nobody at minimum wage unqualified is going to say that what they're doing is they're going to put in their time and no hard feelings man you're trying to get a job done i would rather that same person get some training through our app get some internal credential then gets their first gig and from that gig gets a reputation for doing their job well and then can can move up that ladder I mean, not everybody's got to be a Navy SEAL to go do security. I mean, the majority of security out there doesn't require that, but it does require training, professionalism, and incentives. And I think the incentive to get the job done right means you got to be paid a real wage.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. There's something you dropped earlier that I thought was really cool to prioritize and execute the the like mental model from from time in the service. Is there other stuff like that that's kind of you either you learn from your experience as a SEAL or elsewhere that is like, that you still apply as a, as a startup founder and CEO, whether it's like, you know, I don't know, caffeine management or diet or like how to handle sleeplessness or, or other sort of mental models like that of just ways of thinking and working.
0: Yeah. So we've got, we've got a a lot of acronyms in the military, right? Uh, We got one (laughs) called find, fix and finish, which is, it's, it's used for like targeting for finding bad guys and dealing with them. The same methodology is useful in sales in the same level of like amount of time per category there and, and like what you're trying to do. The, another one is is like AARs, like after action reviews and like talking about what did you think was going to happen? What did happen? What would you do different? That kind of thing. And like understanding that a debrief is, is a requirement, not a like, oh, this is like a positive culture thing or whatever. No, it's like, no, like the debrief actually teaches you something every single time. And you are the prime research, primary researcher. So, like, figure it out and do it. You know, I have another saying that I took from the teams, which is always err on the side of aggression. Moderation is for cowards, which is which is a great one. My wife loves it. I say it to my kids all the time. They need a little bit more context before they take that one to bat. But I, I think it's like that's that's what founders need to do. I think you have yeah. to err on the side of aggression. Moderation is for cowards. Lukewarm's not getting you anywhere. If you're making decisions in your, in your venture backed business, like a person, like you, like how you deal with your own finances, how you deal with your own time, how you do it, like, you it's not going to grow. And I've had bouts of that, but I, you know, some of these mottos have kind of come back. You know, what else? It's like, as far as like health, the, the key there has been like, just do it. Like you got to just keep doing it, even though you don't want to, and having some, some discipline behind that from the military has been helpful. So like, even on, I mean, I wake up some days and the absolute last thing in the world I want to do is go to CrossFit at like five in the morning, but you just got to go, got to go do it anyways. It's funny. I, um, uh, I'm not huge on, on the, uh, like the different, like, I don't know, social groups, people call it like CrossFit a cult, those kind of things. You know, the gym I go to in Rochester, Parka, CrossFit. The only reason I went is this was the closest gym, like it was a gym I could walk and run to that had Olympic lifting equipment. And I'd never been in a CrossFit gym and I was worried it was going to be a cult. Not this one, man. Everybody just shows up. Like at least the early, all I do is the, 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 the early morning class. It's like, literally, it's just a bunch of people who show up, work out, laugh and go home. Nobody's competing. Nobody, nobody's going to the CrossFit games out of that, that crew. I think there's some people in the other, other groups so I found that to be nice that as an as an entrepreneur, I don't have to think about anything. I can just show up and do it and then, like to add to that like kind of discipline side, like I've had to cut back on that a little bit with the phase of the company we are now with how much I'm working. But again, in the military, I just learned it. It's like you gotta keep pushing your body and and growing that. so I've switched to like running and and like i've I gotta do something so if I can't make that time because I was up till four a m it's like, well, okay, well, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to I'm going to go do something. So that's been helpful.
1: Something you said in there is inspiring me to do to do another sort of last or second to last question, like erring on the side of aggression, moderations for cowards, which I love. And thinking about what you said, like you can't act like a normal person when you're doing a venture scale business. Like you have to just learn to think differently and in extremes and in power laws and in you know like. To me that is the thought process of leverage it's like what mm. what is the highest leverage action available to me right now and, and i was talking to my buddy andrew finn who's like who was on this podcast and he's like entrepreneurship is basically a series of refocusing on high leverage actions with that knowing that that changes after each iteration like after you take each action it changes mm. and i wonder you know if that, if that resonates with you and if you have like you know, a, a few things stand out to you from the last couple of months of being like, that one hour was incredibly well spent or that, or, or feeling sort of the high leverage work shift over time.
0: That whole idea of it shifting every time lines up with the OODA loop as well. The Observe, Orient, Decide Act, right? Was pretty popular in the civilian side. It was extremely important in small unit tactics where every time you take a big tactical action Everything changes. It's not just where you are in the field or where your your platoons are, your your different operators. The enemy changed. the The sun angle changed. Like everything changed every single time. And so you can't just plan seven steps ahead. You can have a plan. Plan your dive. Dive your plan. Is is another one we use for for diving, which is pretty much space, right? Because we do it at dark or at night totally dark with like a compass and like your fin count to like figure out where you're going. So you better have a good plan for for your your dive. You're doing underwater nav like that. But the reality is your plan is only good until your feet hit the ground. It's always wrong, right? Everything's different. And so you have to have that OODA loop always going, you know, you're, you're observing, orient side act over and over. I mean, there's a, a push and pull of that I think in entrepreneurship and certainly at Cantera, where we also don't wanna be pivoting our primary focus every 15 minutes. We can't pivot the company every two weeks because then we get to the end of two years and we're like, wow, our company's only been working on this for two weeks uh, because we pivoted a hundred times. So I'm not sure what the catalysts have been. Definitely lately it's it's been that that pivot to demand, Everything changed, but then it's but been all small pivots inside, which feel more like development iteration than they feel like like fully shifting direction. You know, and we we have to go all in sometimes on 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 things we didn't expect. So for example, Colorado surely was not a like one of my targets. I wasn't thinking, oh, we'll build out in Colorado. I was thinking pretty much everything's coastal, people travel these places, vacation, all that kind of stuff. We have like three clients in Colorado. And so now it's like, well, we're we're pivoting a piece of our company is gonna be in Colorado. We're gonna, we're gonna do these. They're these are some awesome clients. We're gonna figure that out. And then once we've gone there, probably mid May, end of May, we're gonna have to like that AAR is gonna be like, okay, do we ever come back to Colorado? <laughs> like, like, was this worth it? And if not, we we pivot. And he might say, Oh, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Well, it certainly is because that next decision on if we're coming back means whether or not we're gonna open an entity there, whether or not we're gonna get licensed to do other security work and kind of hold liability for the marketplace there, whether like there's a lot that goes into that decision and you just kinda have to, to swing, right? Like it's after I just spent four days in, in LA, it's clear. There there's no question. I mean, the amount of referrals and conversations I've had since then, like I think in one week, like it's skyrocketed like you know Beverly Hills, Berkeley Heights, like Malibu, Agoura Hills, like all of it. Every one of those fits in our category. So it's like we're doing that, and everybody likes to brag about this stuff. So like put the two together. Let's let's go. But yeah, I don't know. The those are probably the work catalysts at home. I think it's just been uh, having to really having to really consider just like what does working hard at home look like too. Like, like I can't just throw in the towel at home because work is really hard. So it's like, what does that look like? And, you know, up until I opened up fundraising, that meant my phone was off from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. If if I was home during those hours. So usually at least two hours a day, my phone was off, which helped me not think about work during that period. So my kids got me and my, and my wife got me you know but then you gotta you gotta continue to adapt what you've got going on for fundraising that's not an option right if you know if i've got an investor who says he's gonna call and you know it's in a time frame i'm not gonna say hey brother sorry don't hey don't call me that during that moment because like i'm not gonna answer it's like nope you gotta be on so you just gotta pivot along with it and and yeah i guess i would say that to anybody who's a who's a parent and getting into this game is be ready work hard on both you you if you don't it's gonna fall apart
1: last question how can we we as me and and listeners you help conterra like what is a useful maybe referral you know obviously the fundraise is going on right now at least probably will be when this podcast comes out lean in for a few Probably a week or two, at least after. Yeah. But like, how can we how can we show up for you and continue to contribute and you know help you increase the quality of life of the one million men and women who work in the security industry? I like that mission. I'm going to keep using that. Yeah. I mean, I
0: mean that's the mission. And <laughs> hammer that it, home. It, it's yeah. I, 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 That's why we got into this in the first place, right? the The first idea behind this was the career enablement platform for top tier veterans to do international contracting work. So that was like the first iteration, and it was to protect it was not to unionize but to, but to protect and help these top tier operators get paid what they deserve. We're still going to do that and we're still building that into it. It's just we're we're going after a million people instead of, you know, 800. So how can you know how can the listeners help? So a, a ton of different ways. Obviously we're 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 growing on the home threat assessment and the travel security management side. We're ready to serve both those markets. So, you know, I'm ready to have a sales conversation with anybody also the majority of the conversations i'm still booking are uh, just customer like discovery calls like steve blank's customer discovery where you know i ask for 25 to 45 minutes depending on you know i ask for 45 or 25 and have them choose you know and then i keep to it but the idea behind those conversations is i ask a lot of details about how people are purchasing services what types of services they've have what type of security scenarios they've been in in their lifetime you know, I, I try to stay away from the What do you think of this product or or would you buy this? And so anybody who wants to have that conversation, get on the phone with me, I'd love to have it. I'll buy you a beer or something if we ever meet in person afterward. But th- the idea is just to get more information from more people. So you don't have to be ultra high net worth. Really, if you've ever paid somebody else to set up anything on your house, you, you probably have enough enough of a fit that I can learn something from you. Um, the next would be anybody who travels, like love to talk to those people too. How do they deal with, um, security guidance with uh, medical concierge, that kind of thing. So this is all customer side. The really key introductions that I'm just getting into, uh, right now that are helpful and have been extremely fruitful have been to security managers. So anybody who runs the security operations at any size company, they they just, they purchase a lot of vendor services. And so hearing how they purchase is important. Fundraising side, yeah, we're raising 200k now. You know, hopefully, honestly, hopefully there it is close by the time this this uh, podcast comes out, based on the traction we have so far. But I would love to talk to you, anyways. You know, we're we're raising on safe agreements, so we can we can we can. It's a little fluid. We can move that around a little bit, and then of course, I'm starting to build relationships with like bona fide venture capital firms for the series seed. So I've already started some of those conversations. Now I'm taking it slow because I need to focus, you know, we talk about prioritize and execute, but that's a key a key KPI for me over the next 180 days is building strong relationships with a few, you know, top-tier seed funds so that we're we're not going into the market blind in 3 months going like, "Oh geez, I guess we just cold call now." Last one since since I'm listing them all would be marketplace people, man. Anybody who's been inside a marketplace and has dealt with it, especially if services or a labor-based marketplace, but um, really interested to learn how some of the union economics worked in your company, because it seems like everybody does it different. You know, NFX has some incredible videos, podcasts and essays about it, and there's some cool resources online. But I found that almost across the board, when I talk to people inside marketplaces, it's much less yeah. sophisticated. Than what (laughs) than what's written down, and so the more nuanced at the same time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I shouldn't say sophisticated, maybe complicated. There's all these words (laughs) that kind of come together. It's much less straightforward, is what I wanted to say. Yeah, Uh, you know, it's like there's a lot of experimentation, and so um, hearing what people ended up on is, is would be helpful.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm sure you know. Uh, we should try to track down somebody from from RigUp and some of the other, especially the, the yeah. staffing and and industry specific marketplaces. I feel like those would be really interesting conversations and totally like non competitive. Like, why why wouldn't somebody at RigUp want to shoot the shit with you and share some observations? So, uh, yeah, when, it's
0: funny. It, real quick, you said non competitive. One thing that's been interesting in this market and has started to really work was. Uh, like vendors didn't trust us at all before the first 6 months like they really didn't i think they thought we were going to steal their contracts compete with them we we're just trying to learn from them to to like do their job better or something now that we're cl- collecting the demand side first they are answering the calls but i still have to take 10 minutes of the call to describe how we're not competing it's like look we're bringing you business we're we're helping you do this our goal is for you to be the most successful vendor possible and to have higher quality outcomes and to have you know better people applying for your jobs like that's what we want to do but man it's it's hard they they just it takes a second for them to be like oh okay so let's figure out how to help each other and i'm like cool i know how you can help let's let's talk (laughs) because
1: i plan this which is (laughs) which is back to the that that quote you mentioned is is uh you know a, a dirty industry monetizing relationships, or I, I'm paraphrasing yeah, it, but a, a
0: industry, sorry, a dirty industry of relationship arbitrage.
1: Relationship arbitrage. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, yeah, no wonder everyone kind of comes in with their guard up, um, mm-hmm. to, to even what seem like casual conversations. Cause you just, if you've operated in a zero sum industry, let alone a, a sort of relationship arbitrage industry, your whole career, it's really, you know, I think people in tech have a hard time appreciating how different the mindset is of some of the people who work in industry. Like, you know, if you work in a real estate brokerage, like people are trying to steal deals from each other. It's fucking weird and savage. And right. like, you have a frenemy relationship with the guy a cubicle over. It's not like you all have shared equity. It's not like right. you have stock in the, in the business and it's not the mindset of growing a pie to share with everybody.
0: I talked to, uh, I talked to one. Employee, a security guard employee, who said that he switches companies that he works for every four months on purpose, and the reason he does that is because four around the four months period is when they stop treating you well, is when they start to treat you worse and worse. And he used the term abuse, but what what he meant was at first your your shifts are good shifts, and then and then they promote you to this other role, and well now your salary, but now they're going to actually make you work like twice as many hours so you're actually making less money for your time and and then eventually you have no control at all and this is this one experience so he goes yeah so i just i just quit every four months i switch companies because it's they just abuse you after that and i was like oh my goodness we got to fix that
1: which sucks for everybody it's so predatory it's like i mean it
0: sucks for the people who are paying for security like right they don't want a guy or or people who are getting like forced into like like Bad hours with bad training with bad outcomes and and on top of this what we're what we know and see is that those main companies don't care because they have the long contract anyways and their business model more or less is look the value we bring is no matter what happens you won't get fired because you hired a big name (laughs) right. It's so, oh yeah, somebody broke in, there was a fire and the fire safety stuff didn't work the right way, blah, blah, blah. Well, insurance will still cover it because you hired a big name and you won't get fired because you hired a big name. It's shitty. Ugh, gross. <laughs> so
1: gross. Gross and bad. It's the opposite of, gro- gross and bad and the opposite of Munger's, you know, seamless web of deserved trust, which is how we all want to be spending our lives, the optimal sort of relationship that we can have with others. I so. love that, yeah. Man, as always, thank you so much for taking the time and showing up, and you know, being candid. I know every hour matters for you and your business and your family. So, thank you for keeping us all up to date and you know, bringing, bringing a little bit of your experience to to the world and sharing what you learned. So it, so, it means a lot to me, and I enjoy it. And you know, we have thousands of people sort of following along on the journey and rooting for you, and it's it's fun to see it unfold and learn all together.
0: I definitely enjoy it. I enjoy coming on here. I look forward to today. I cracked a beer for this one. It's a, it's a, it's a cool break from the reality. And you know, I'll get back to my whiteboard list of people here after this is not closed up. But it's fun. I do wonder, though. You mentioned something earlier of like how getting CEOs to talk about the realities. I wonder at like what size company it will be where I just start to sound like the same, like talking box of every other. CEO founder who has to like keep 99% of what's actually occurring under wraps. We'll see if that ever happens or if we can build open forever or or what, but hopefully we can yes. just have a great I mean, therapy session once a quarter.
1: I hope so. I mean, we we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have to do it offline, but it, like we're in a beautiful spot where like, you know, it, the the podcast feels like a scale where it's still this kind of intimate thing and like your business is small enough that it's not like you got 400 people working there and you got somebody at your company listening to it, who's got like an adversarial relationship with you, and like right. investors are trying to like listen nitpick every little thing and like I don't know, we're all we're also like rooting for you and supporting each other. And well, here's what I, I do. Know, know. It, it is interesting to think about where that flips, but
0: if we uh if we build such a great business that I can look at my investors and 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 I choose the terms, then I can do this normal forever. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so, I like it. Let
1: that, <laughs> let that be the goal. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to support Zach on his mission in any way that you can personally. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take 14 seconds to leave a review, uh, which helps others find the show and makes me feel better about this massive investment of time and effort. If you like this episode, you will also love my episode with Kevin Espiritu. We explore there how he grew his gardening business to tens of millions in revenue in the past few years by combining the media and D2C business models. The thought I'll leave you with today is that two things are true. Great companies are built by extraordinary individuals who take the bold step of trying to bring a new vision into reality. But it's also true that companies are built by a whole community who hears that bold vision, believes in it, and starts to rework the world to support that vision. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off.
0: What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage.
1: Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well.